Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, player development for all ages. And uh, Jim and I will be coming with you, coming at you once a week uh, to give you a new show on our network here. I'm excited to, to get to him uh, with episode 213 here. But before I do and introduce Jim and get rolling with you guys, just want to talk to our audience quickly. 19,600 subscribers as of this morning. We're getting close to that 20,000 mark. We want to try to hit it by Sunday. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. If you do that, we can continue to battle the podcast world analytics just like we do in baseball and keep giving you great content like you're going to see on this show today. Get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I get back to one guest, or I'm sorry, one listener live every day. I get back to everybody privately. We had over 300 questions this morning when I woke up. It keeps piling up as I get closer to noon, so I'm anticipating close to 500 today. 72 countries now, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And as our audience makes me, they hold, I'm beholden to our audience only. That's it. And they asked me to read this to new listeners. Make sure you prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball and life as you listen to the show. As this program, like all of our others, just has no time for the comforting lies. So we're going to hit you with our new show here, Toe the Rubber, Player Development for All Ages, right between the eyes like we do with all our other shows. And with that, I want to welcome the star of this show, Jim Rooney. Jim, welcome to welcome to your show. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me, and thank you for doing this. I appreciate yeah. it. No, we've had a number of conversations. We had you on the podcast to the other shows twice and could have kept you on for eight hours uh, per show if we weren't abusing you. And then as you and I talked uh, both on the phone, by text, and then finally in person, we got to, to meet watching our, our two boys play baseball. It's a no-brainer in terms of what we're trying to do, and um, it kind of connects with what you're trying to do up there in, in uh, Fort Mill. But before we get going, share, share with our audience a little bit of your background. I know that those loyal listeners have heard you on the show twice, but just give, give us a little background on you and your you know professional career. And you know, you're just just not a regular dad here getting out here uh, spouting about baseball. Uh, well, <clears throat> as you know, my my career started a long time ago, back in. Uh, 1981, I was the um, uh, first pick in the nation by the Chicago Cubs and then uh, did not sign uh, because the uh, the owners at that time, the Wrigley's, were selling the team to the Tribune Company, so they froze all the budgets. So I went back into the next draft, and I was first-round picked by the Baltimore Orioles, where I eventually signed. Um I had many great experiences there because of the teachers, the coaches, and the, and the big league players that I learned from. Um, was playing in Double A in Charlotte. In the rain, slipped, accident, tore my shoulder up, and that was a slow end of the career. So uh, I was out of baseball for a while, and I got back in. And all told, now I I guess I have tw- approximately twenty five years of major league baseball experience and over 40 years of coaching at all levels from youth to all the way through the minor leagues professionally. Um, so I've, I've, uh, I've seen a lot and probably the greatest thing I can take out of this entire journey is, uh, I've been extremely lucky to run into a whole bunch of people from hall of fame pitchers like Robin Roberts to hall of fame, Jim Palmer to a full array of coaches and, uh, baseball people and uh, learned a tremendous amount from from all of them and I've tried to take something from everyone something um, 
a lot of what I've done is, is self-research and self-education because of the experiences I've had, whether they be the high ones or the low ones. And that knowledge is just accumulated over the years. Um, when I got back into professional baseball, uh, I taught baseball in France for a year for the commissioner's office. I ran the Bologna Fortitudo uh, baseball program from their amateur levels to their professional level in Italy for two years. Worked with Sparky Lyle and the Somerset Patriots back in 99 and then back into affiliated ball with the Toronto Blue Jays as a special assignment scout and a pitching coach. Uh, eventually moved on to the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, first five years, I was the pitching coordinator in charge of developing all the pitching in the organization. And then uh, Doug Melvin, the GM, asked me to move over to the uh, scouting side, and I helped revamp the whole evaluation process and how we looked um, at amateur pitchers, high school and college, how we scouted them, evaluated them, and developed them. What were some of those nuances that you, you, you changed? Well, I... I think it has to do with the with the growing trend in in uh, baseball. Even before analytics, a lot of people looked at pitchers, um, you know, through the radar gun and um, how hard they threw, how how crisp their stuff was. Um, when I got into the scouting side with the Brewers, there was a lot of young scouts uh, in the organization. There was a lot of young scouts in baseball. And, you know, some of them had uh, professional playing experience, but not as a, as a pitcher. Um, so they, they were very much performance orientated um, in, in the way they looked at things. And uh, I attempted them, I attempted to uh, educate them on the flow of energy force created through the kinetic chain, all the different things that add up to why a person can grow into be a major league pitcher because of the little things that they currently did and, and possibly they didn't even know what they were doing, but they did them naturally. Uh, you know, along those lines, before I was doing that in Milwaukee, I had the opportunity um, to work with uh, scouts in my past, such as Tim Wilkin or Chris Buckley, uh, a whole bunch of old-time scouts that, that the, the list is probably uh, too long, uh, you know, to mention. But because my mindset was always to try to learn something new, because it was always about that, you know, there's got to be not only a better way, but, uh, but I mean, I relate it to, it's, it's, it's like all of a sudden you go into a person's closet and they've got clothes from 1960 and next thing you know, uh, things come around, go around, and, and, and you see your kids walking around in clothes from 1960. It, it, was a, it was a similar thought process for me that there was all this old knowledge, this knowledge, it was there, you know. Um, part, of my, part of my nature is that I read a lot. So, for example, uh, the, the psychologist Carl Jung stated once that all knowledge is re-knowledge, you know, that everything is in the collective unconscious and we've learned it already and we know it, but we just have to tap back in. And I thought that in a lot of ways, the scouting when I first got into it was similar to that. There was a lot of knowledge uh, already out there 
there was a, the people had been successful for many, many, many years before uh, I got involved in it. And I just attempted on a daily basis to, to learn that knowledge and experience it. And I think that's in a way is what, how I um, set up certain benchmarks and different things to, uh, to allow some of the younger scouts to, to start to realize those type of things. Yeah. And, and I, I love the conversations we've had because that's where we're at with baseball right now. Again, obviously we've got a lot of great voices out there, a lot of great minds that are being marginalized and not being listened to. And the push that we're doing and you're doing, and now we're, we're together in this. Um, we hope that that swings the pendulum back to hit on that very same philosophy that you've lived your whole life by. So I'm, I'm glad you said that so articulately. You, you put it into words better than I could um, to make that point. Now you're, you're on a new, you're on a, uh, you're taking all that knowledge right now that you have and that experience, um, which is second to none. Your sense of reverence is, is amazing. I love how you, you, you pay tribute to the, the guys in the past that helped you build. You're trying now to help with your new venture, Rooney Baseball LLC in Fort Mill, South Carolina, oh, I'm sorry, it's South Carolina, Fort yes, Mill, sir. South Carolina, um, to take that knowledge and get back in the grassroots baseball to try to, I guess, affect the next generation. Uh, we, we can work on the plane while we fly the plane now with the, with the older kids, but your method is it's for, it's, it hits the youth heart, but it really is for all ages. So those listeners out there that have kids or are kids that are, you know, middle school, high school, college, uh, pro level, this is applicable to you as well. So make sure you're taking notes while you listen. But in your studies now and in your, your time, you've now put together this program um, based on your experiences and people you met. I guess the first big question is, you know, as you're developing it, what, what's your first premise when you see how baseball players are being mistrained? What, what kind of stands out? Um, well, firstly, I currently I've worked with young players in T-ball, believe it or not, that, you know, we're six, seven, eight years old. Um, and of course, with all this travel baseball going on nowadays and Charlotte being a, a hotbed for travel baseball. Um, and then I've worked with, you know, college kids to, uh, professional guys. Some couple of them just signed to play pro ball, whether it be independent ball or affiliated ball. And the one thing that, um, you see run through most of them is when you get back to the beginning of when you're a kid and you're first pick up a baseball or you're first playing catch with your dad or, or playing in your first league with your first team. Um, I always related to that in all the other sports, football, basketball, soccer, hockey, they start you on a smaller field and they start you with a smaller ball. But in baseball, okay, we start on a smaller field but you're using the same ball, nine inches in circumference, five ounces that they use in the major leagues. Um, then with the advent of these travel leagues, everything gets very performance orientated, very competitive early in the, in the, in the young baseball player's life. And they're not really ready for that because now they're looking to try to create force up to the baseball, whether they want to hit it farther or hit it harder or throw it farther or throw it harder. And this tends to create 
bad habits because the arm and the body, one, initially does not work together. Two, it's not physically strong enough to even be placed into proper positions. Um, you know, an example of that is every, everybody knows, anybody that's done research, all the exercise physiologists, the doctors, the athletic trainers, they all know that youth baseball players, okay, because they're just starting to physically mature, they're not going to have the proper internal rotation flexibility to throw a baseball properly. Their hands are rarely going to lay back into external rotation because of the tightness of the of the pushing muscles and the internal rotate, rotators. This is natural. Um, I often say as, as human beings, we're, we, we've become very good at pushing things away from us, but we're, you know, we're very, we're very bad at pulling and, and all the, all the research and everything that you, you know about how the body works is to compensate for that. We want to do like three times more pulling type of movements than we do pushing type of movements. So the internal rotators are much stronger in a young ball player than the external rotators because they've never really worked any of those um, those muscles. And they're naturally much stronger at pushing than they are at pulling. So that's going to lead to the natural tightness in the internal rotators. So in order to compensate, here we are, we have the five ounce ball, we're attempting to pr produce force and, and throw it harder or throw it farther. And the hand doesn't lay back into external rotation. So in essence, we either get a high elbow or a low elbow, or we lead with the elbow, or the hand drops in inside the elbow instead of staying outside and above it. And these are the throwing, throwing actions, throwing mechanics, arm actions that all of a sudden start becoming prevalent. And then the, the sad thing nowadays is that we use Major League Baseball players as the model of how we're supposed to throw or how we're supposed to hit or how we're supposed to train. But now the Major League Baseball players are all basically, for the most part, when you watch a Major League game, are really all strength and power based related. Um, you know, even with the philosophy that strike you can see it when they say you know strikeouts really don't matter that much as long as we 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 have power numbers and we hit home runs so young players and and their dads are watching these games and watching how big leaguers play and in the past you used to say well you know you watch uh you watch ron gidry of the yankees when i'm growing up pitching i want to be like ron gidry but now you know you're saying i want to be like this guy and um and add to it all the uh, all the coaches, all the online gurus, all the pitching guys, all the hitting guys. Everybody wants to, um, you know, get involved in in this child's uh, learning of the game of baseball. And these negative habits are formed. And I mean, I've I've worked with nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year old that are very successful in what they're doing. They're traveling all summer to all the different collegiate all-star games and their thing. They're, they're having success at where they're playing, but long-term they're not going to remain healthy because the way they do it is, is improper as far as uh, proper biomechanics and, and the efficiency of, of playing the game of baseball. 
how do you get their attention? Obviously, your credentials, you, you know, if you talk to one of my boys, regardless of what your credentials are, the way you present yourself, they'd be listening, you know, two eyes and two ears on you. But that that other kid that comes in that's having the the perceived success right now, as you mentioned, that the all-star games are being rewarded for these habits. When you get them in front of you, how do you, how do you get their attention and, and where do you start? Well, um, you know, so especially with some younger kids that their dads probably would remember uh, different players from my past. I mean, sometimes all you got to say is that, uh, you know, you played on the Orioles with Cal Ripken Jr. And now everybody wants to listen. But uh, <clears throat> besides that, there's a lost art I feel nowadays. Um, I call it, uh, you have to learn how to pat somebody on the back, but kick him in the butt at the same time. And when when a young ball player starts to really understand that you might be one of the few people that are in their corner trying to help them, they kind of perk up because like I said, they've been involved in this competitive environment since they're seven, eight years old nowadays. And, and they want to get better. They don't necessarily know how, and they've been listening to a lot of people, but if you have the ability to convince them that you're there to help them and it's about them. It's about how they feel. It's about how they uh, play the game, not about me. It, it kind of opens up some eyes and the ears perk up and they start paying attention. Um, with some of the older guys that are a little bit more set in their way, I've always, even, even when I've, I coached two, uh, two winter ball seasons in Venezuela uh, for the Cardinales de Lara. I coached the season of winter ball in the Dominican for Escojito. You're playing with your um, coaching, instructing players that are AAA, the big leaguers, or trying to either get up to the big leagues for the first time or trying to hang on to the big leagues or on their way down, and they're trying to recapture what they had a few years earlier. So they have a tremendous amount of experience. It still works for them when they know, wow, this, this person's here to try to help me. Um, they're older. They're a little more experienced. So initially, the first couple of times you deal with them, you have to make it apparent to them that you're knowledgeable and you know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think once you cut point. through that, you're usually successful. Those are great points as parents are trying to decipher between, as you mentioned, those, the YouTube, you know, gurus out there, there's, there's more of those now than Starbucks uh, going on. So, and as our audience kind of listening to, to Jim understand, I mean, as you're trying to figure out what's real and what's not, he talked about three important ingredients right there. One is you got to know the person cares about you. It's not a transactional relationship. Second, that they understand how you learn. And then they understand how you socialize that pat in the back, kick in the butt thing. You, you've got to understand those three components. Otherwise, the knowledge you have is is going to be cookie cutter or generic. So uh, that, that's those are three great points that I hope our audience grabs onto that as they're they, they ask me that question all the time. How do you tell the difference? How do you know? And there you go. There's there's three great points that he just articulated that'll help you on your journey out there. And uh, Jim, I know in, in preparation for doing what you're doing now, and you've probably done this for a lifetime, I'm sure getting to know you. And in preparation for our, you know, our intro show today, 
I know you put together kind of your, an outline of, you know, how you de- developed or how you went about creating this. Um, go down that for me, you know, one at a time. I know the first one was the, the smaller ball. What are some other things that you've seen with the mistraining of baseball players? Okay. Well, first I have a, a quick analogy concerning our, our, the last point that you made. Um, I tell this story that if you're, if your dad hired a carpenter to put some really nice crown molding on the, on the ceiling in the dining room, make it really looking good. And he showed up at your front door with a hacksaw, but he said, I'm a magician with this hacksaw. I know how to get this done. You'll be He's either selling himself and trying to promote his skill level and his knowledge, or he's selling hacksaws because a professional would show up with an entire toolbox and pick the appropriate tool for the situations that's needed. Um, all these people online and different, even, even if their heart is in the right place and they're attempting to help people, once you understand that they start promoting there's one way to do something or this is the way to train and they don't realize you're dealing with individuals, you know, they're the guys that showed up at the front door if they were a carpenter with the hacksaw. I like that one way that that's, that, that that's a lot of them too. Um, yeah. Yeah. That eliminates um, 90% of them. Basically the things that, that hit me. So I started a family late in life. So I have a, uh, well, tomorrow's my son, Seamus's 10th birthday. And, uh, my other son, Brennan will be six in uh, November. So one day Seamus came to me, Oh, about two years, um, yeah, about two years ago. And, you know, he was playing the regular, you know, Little League or Town Rec ball. Um, his first sport initially was basketball. Um, he's a pretty good basketball player. Brag about uh, your wife for a second. Yeah, my wife played uh, Division One. My wife, Maureen, played Division One basketball at DePaul. Yeah. Um, her father played Division One basketball in, in Chicago. Um, so when we, before we moved to Fort Mill and we were living in Chicago, Seamus was around basketball. He was uh, loved playing basketball. Saturdays he would uh, he'd watch Duke basketball with my father in law. He just he, he absolutely loves and adores um, my wife's father. So they're very very close. And um, then we moved to Fort Mill and played basketball. Of course, COVID, everything with the lockdown and all. When it first opened up, he met. Uh, he met a foot, football coach that I've done some work with, with some you know, young athletes. Great guy, ex, uh, ex-NFL defensive back with the uh, Buffalo Bills. Grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Went to University of South Carolina. Coach Co. And all Seamus wanted to do was play flag, flag football with Coach Co. Fine, go do it. So after the whole COVID thing and the seasons then, you know, turned and uh it was baseball and his first experience in Fort Mill wasn't wasn't necessarily a a great one you know he wasn't on a good team his whole uh competitive nature from playing the other sports uh, so I said uh, next season if you would like me to coach you I'll help you out because I've never approached him and told him what to do I always thought it's best that uh, young kids learn on their own and then eventually you fine-tune them and structure them. Uh, 
but you'd rather let them out there and do their thing and learn how their body moves and stuff. So I've never forced myself upon him to do anything. I want to ask you a question on that one because that's sure. rare. Uh, most, and I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a you know, former two-sport college athlete, former professional athlete, and coached collegially for 22 years, and I never wanted to coach my kids in terms of pushing them to a sport. And it's ironic that they gravitated toward the two sports that, um, that I played. But um, how important is the self-teaching aspect? Because when you and I were young, we taught ourselves for the most part. We had coaches, but we weren't overtrained and overcoached like these kids are now. Right. I think for each individual, you have to eventually learn how your body moves, what your body type is, what the things that come natural for you, um, and to develop the feel of what you're doing, especially in a repetitive sport like, like baseball, similar to shooting in basketball. I mean, you have to develop a feel for what you're doing. You can't be going down a checklist. Um, you know, as, as the audience is going to learn, I'm big, I'm big sometimes because I'm dealing with young players with analogies. So I tell the one about 90% of kids will tell you that their favorite dessert is chocolate cake or chocolate ice cream. So whatever it is, I'll say to them, when you first started learning how to eat chocolate cake, you know, you're probably a toddler, maybe when your mom or dad gave you a piece of chocolate cake for your birthday. And was somebody standing behind you with an instruction manual telling you what to do? And I look at you, you know, and I go, no, no, of course. And I said, I bet you the first time you ate the chocolate cake, half of it was on the, on the plate or table and half of it was in your mouth. You know, and, and maybe a quarter in your mouth and a quarter all over your face. And they laugh and they go, yeah, I, I think so. I said, how did you get better? Or why did you get better at eating that chocolate cake as the years went by? Uh, probably because it tastes good. I said, exactly. It tastes good, which is similar to it feels good. So based on the taste or the feel you start learning how to get more and more of that cake in your mouth. And hopefully by now, you're eight, nine years old, you're getting 100% of it in your mouth and you love it, correct? Yeah. I said, so you see, nobody had to teach you how to do that. You relied on feel and learning how to do something for yourself because it tastes good, because it feels good. I think that that's what these kids miss nowadays especially in baseball, because they're being coached, like I said, you know, f since they're five, six, seven years old. You know, when I was growing up, you used to go to the schoolyard or, or stickball in the street or whatever, and you'd, a whole bunch of kids in the neighborhood, you'd play a game. You learned. Maybe there was another guy that was two years older than you, and he was really good. You watched him. You learned. Okay? You learned how your body did things. You learned even how you were to be competitive. You're not gonna you're not gonna love going out in the street and playing with your buddies if every time you go out there you lose or you strike out. So you figure it out. You figure it out. Remember, we're all survival uh, our bodies are all survival mechanisms. It's gonna figure out how to get things done because you don't want to fail. You don't want to lose. You don't want to die. You know, it's just the the way that we're put together. Um the repetitive nature of baseball, it becomes adamant that the child feels what they're doing, no matter what age. That's how you develop positive motor skills. 
That's how you're able to do things on a repetitive nature by not thinking, but by feeling. And this happened, this has happened in, in youth development way before analytics came in, but it's like these cookie cutter models or these manuals or learn how to do this. And then the, you read a book and you do this and that, and, and you try to apply it to baseball and everything becomes like a paint by numbers. One, two, three, we, we break down the pitching mechanic. We do this, we do that. And the person never develops the field because when you overanalyze a situation or overthink a situation and overthinking in baseball is very easy to do because your mind says you don't want to fail. So you attempt to try to figure out what am I supposed to do? you know, to be successful, but that turns off the feeling centers of the brain. And then you're lost as far as the repetitive nature of the baseball game, because you haven't felt, or you've never been part of the process. Um, that's, that's if you're going down that road, any bump in the road becomes a major setback because you don't have a benchmark and a feel uh, to how to get back on track because you've never felt it from the beginning. Um, that's the, I think that's the one of the greatest things that I do with young ball players is I get them back to understand it's about them and how they feel. Um, with the, with the real young player, when I'm introduced to them, I'll tell them that listen, every week that we're together, every time we're together, you owe me a question. You have to ask me a question, and initially. Yeah, if it's a baseball question, that's that's a positive. I, but eventually, I want them to ask me a question about things that we did maybe last week or something that came up in their game and how they felt. Uh, when they come to see me, the first thing I say to them, I don't ask them, how'd you do this week? No. How'd you feel? And because they're new to the situation, they'll say, oh, I pitched five innings. I had six strikeouts. I, I did pretty good. That's excellent. That's how you performed. How'd you feel? Did something come up in the game where you got a little confused, where you got a little, you know, you, you lost the strike zone? How'd you feel? How'd you adjust? What did you do? Um, a great, a great, great book, as you know, is is uh, out on Amazon by Dr. Curtis. You've spoken with him. I've spoken with him many, many times. It's a story format for young ball players to learn how these two two little leaguers started learning how to play the baseball, and it gives them the different mental skills. I mean, I've I've had over 40, 50 clients that have purchased the book, and they they rave about it because it gives them things to focus on so that they understand they're part of the process instead of being coming too emotional, get caught up in this overthinking the whole thing. And, it, and it's a, it's a great read for all young ball players. Um, but it, 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 it flows right into the things that, that I was teaching already. And, and a lot of that is centered around feel. Um, we see that in the majors right now, correct? I mean, we've got guys that are the best of the best and there are warriors out there and, you see him checking in between innings on a wristband or an index card or, you know, listening to an ear com on what they're supposed to do on the next pitch. And uh, that's sad for me to see. Yes. I mean, 
not that I ever saw the guy play, but you know, all the stories you ever hear about Joe DiMaggio was he, he seemed to be where the ball was being, you know, three or four steps and never looked like he was running and, and, and played a magnificent center field. Kind of like Wayne Gretzky on the, on the hockey rink. They were like, he just ends up where the puck is. It's unbelievable. Like it's a sixth sense. Well, because that's learning and feeling what you're doing and being part of the process uh, instead of being part of the analysis. I mean, nowadays, you know, you, you, you have plenty of other podcasts that have dealt and I've been a guest on them where I've dealt with, you know, the ills of what's going on in yeah. baseball now. And, you know, a lot of that the audience knows, you know, by just watching the big league game. But um, I bring it up because you're I mean, you're you're getting to the root of it right now. You're getting to the grassroots. You're getting down in the weeds with these kids solving the problem that that's the end result that people want to see what's happening right now. We've lost that feel that, that Jim's talking about. So, yeah, I, I didn't mean to digress there, but bring it back to where where you were going, especially with Dr. Rickus, because he's a he's a fan favorite. Yeah, I mean, how, how I first met him was. um I saw online the book, uh, Win the Next Pitch, and coincidentally, I asked the young guys that I work with, I said, you know what the greatest thing about baseball is? And they'll say, it's fun, it's a bit, and I go, oh, those, are all, those are all good answers, but um, the only thing that matters is the next pitch, whether you're throwing it, hitting it, or fielding it. And I saw his title of his book, and me being me, I... I researched on how to get in touch with them. Next thing you know, we were on the phone. You thought it was going to be a 20 minute conversation. It turned into like a three hour conversation. And, and, uh, yeah, I started recommended the book because he sent me a copy and my, my son Seamus read it. And then I read it and I said, this is spectacular. This is, this is something that, um, all young players can, can do to help themselves while they're not with a coach or they're not with an instructor. And they start to read some of the things that they could, can do, and, and it becomes a positive thing. And it just adds to then what they can accomplish when they're with you and they're working with you. Um, along those lines, there's the other thing that happens to young players is, you know, that voice in the head. Um, you know, I have, I have a theory on that is that, you know, that voice in your head, that, that was very, very valuable. That voice was very valuable when, um, you know, when uh, mankind first came into existence and there was a lot of things out there that needed to be avoided, you know, whether it was the lions or tigers in the jungle or, or whatever. Um, there was a lot of things that that voice in your head was necessary for, for your survival. Well, you know, nowadays, um, you know, it's not really, it's not really a real good use for it because, you know, we don't really live in a world uh, especially here in Fort Mill, we don't live in a world where there's all these different dangers that that voice has to always be there and be attentive and be part of the process. So in my view, what's happened is that voice takes up, um, uh, sets up shop in the realm of negativity and it becomes, you know, just this negative thing. It's a just, and, and, uh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, watching a cartoon, whatever it was, Bugs Bunny or whatever, and, and you always had that scene where the where the angel's on one shoulder and the devil's on the other shoulder and they're fighting. Yeah. Well, I, well, I think what happens nowadays is that there's just the negative guy on that one shoulder. There's not a lot of positive on the other shoulder, and we get lost in that voice. And that voice, it wants to 
it wants to make sure that it has a place and it has its own importance. And it's taken up, like I said, shop in the world of negativity. And the thing about, uh, I think, human nature is that we, we, don't really, we don't really function well in that realm of negativity. We, we get stuck on it. And if you're stuck on it, we'll bring it back to baseball, how do you then focus or win the next pitch? Very yeah. difficult. So those are some of the factors I see, um, you know, with the young ball players. Yeah, um, baseball is not the sport to get into that with, too, because it's already a sport of failure. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, to get back to, like, why did I even start doing this? Um, never, never in a million years did I think that uh, you know as I was approaching my 60th birthday would I be um, instructing teaching coaching baseball for little league age children ball players um, I never never was in the cards you know as far as my mind um, there was a story from my past when I when I came home after my my accident my injuries and two surgeries and then the slow, you know, death, if you would say of my, my playing days. Um, my mother said to me, um, you know, because obviously all mothers are very concerned about their children and also she, one time in a, a moment that we were alone, she said, what, what do you think you're going to do next? And I said, mom, I, I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm going to do next, but, um, I'll tell you one thing. If one day I win the lottery, I'm going to set up a free clinic, a free baseball training place so that the things that happen to me don't happen to anybody else because nobody, nobody needs to experience that. That's it's not necessarily a good thing. And uh, now, needless to say, I, have, I haven't won the lottery. Um, but then I saw the coaching that my at the time, seven-year-old son was being exposed to. And then even times that he wanted to see some of his um, good friends who were already were playing travel ball. I went to watch some of those games, some of those tournaments, because he really started to enjoy it. His interest peaked. It started growing, growing, and growing. He started approaching me more and more. And I said, you know what? I mean, I, I've gone to travel ball tournaments where, believe it or not, kids are eight and nine, year, ten years old, and they have a. Some of the organizations or the tournaments they play in, they you know they don't necessarily follow the major league baseball and the commissioners. You know, pitch smart guidelines. A lot of those guidelines first put together by Dr. James Andrew about number of pitches and all that days of rest and everything like that. And some of these organizations in these tournaments is that, you know, there's an innings rule. If you, you're only allowed to pitch a certain amount of innings per weekend. And uh, next thing you know, I'm having 10-year-old kids. Um, they'll close the first game, they'll close the second game, and then they'll start the game on, on Sunday or yeah. Saturday. And I'm like, this is insane. When, when when I was the pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers, I didn't I didn't necessarily have anyone throw back to back days until they were in the middle of their double A season. 
um, you know, the rest and the recuperation was, was mandatory, was necessary. And here I'm going to tournaments and a 10 year old kid, I then worked with a 14 year old kid and he was just starting to pitch very, very good athlete. Thought that he'd be uh, even more attractive to his travel ball team and to his middle school team if he uh, started to pitch some more. And he didn't necessarily want to tell me exactly what was going on, but one day he said to me, um, hey, when we throw a bullpen today, could we could we take it out a little longer? You know, do, do you have anybody coming afterwards? Could, could we just do this this one time? And I said, no, I, I, we've got plenty of time. Why would you like to take it out a little longer? And he goes, well, it always seems like I get to the fourth inning and I start to get tired. Um, so if I can get through the fifth inning, then the coach won't pitch me the next game or the next day. So I said to him, wait, wait, run that by me again. Your, your coach is pitching you on the Saturday morning game. And if you pitch four innings, you're coming back and pitching in the Saturday afternoon game or the Sunday morning game. He goes, yeah, that's why I want to make sure I pitch five because I don't think that's good for me. Um, so I started seeing all of that and I was like, you know, I mean, I, I got, I, I have to do something to the best of my ability to try to help these young players out because they're getting totally misguided. They're, they're, you know, doing things. Um, and these, and these, uh, it's adults. They'll, they'll, they'll manipulate the pitching rotations to do just what you're saying. Yeah. Rather than throwing a kid five or six innings on one day and that be it for the tournament, and they think that's unhealthy. They'll throw them for nine innings over a three-day period, um, back to back to back, because it's within the confines of the rule. It's it's criminal, both from the uh, the tournament director standpoint to the adults running it. Right. The best one I had was the other day, Jim. I had my my kids out in a uh, tournament put on partially by USA Baseball, four hundred teams, and it was the best pitching rule I saw ever. It was a wood bat tournament, and kids did really well. And they said uh, pitching guidelines. Adults, use your heads. Don't abuse the pitchers. Your pitchers can throw as it fits their bodies and their minds. Please use common sense when utilizing your pitchers in these games. And so all these coaches, you, you were dealing with, again, different level coaching out there and whatnot, but they would throw their pitcher game one, and you wouldn't see him for four more days. The tournament was six days, so maybe he'd come back on day five. Um, right. I threw my guy game one. He threw what I thought was – what, you know, you watch their mechanics. If they start to break down a little bit, if they can correct on their own or a simple tweak, but otherwise, boom, I'm getting a kid out. He came back and threw. I said, okay, day four, I'm going to bring you back on day five if you're good. But on day four, how do you want to get your bullpen? Do you want to do it live for, you know, 24 to 40 pitches or do you want to, you know, do it on the side? And he wanted to do it live. So we threw him 24, I think we threw him 30 pitches live. And I said, that's it. This is not about me winning games. This is about you getting work in and learning how to train as a pitcher properly. So. Right, but there's too many knuckleheads out there um, trying to win tournaments, get that ring, get that banner, um, and put it on social media for and charge these kids more money. So, but I, I digress. We're getting close to 45 minutes. I kept you for a long time today. Keep, keep going down that list. Or what do you got next? Well, um, there's two things that become um, very important that I see what goes on in youth baseball. And, and that is that we, 
as I stated earlier, we get obsessed with how 35-year-old pitchers in the big leagues throw or how they train, and then a lot of coaches and all take that, and then they expect their 10-year-old to train in a similar fashion or throw in a similar way. Um, and then because the major league game is, is becoming so power orientated, you know, it's not a good example for them. Um, so I can remember back, and I think this is where a lot of my thought process and philosophy, if you want to say it, or theory of how things work, uh, first started coming into, uh, into play. Um, I, I don't know exactly which spring training this was, but I was in big league camp for the first time. And, um, I reported to Ray Miller, the Baltimore Orioles, um, pitching coach. And usually after reporting to him, he would go, go, go shag out in the outfield. Um, and then when BP's over, we're going to throw a pen or you're going to pitch in a game today and you know, whatever. But this day he said, uh, yeah, follow me to the bullpen. So I go to the bullpen and, uh, And Elrod Hendricks is catching the bullpens, and the first pitcher thrown a bullpen is Scotty McGregor. Now, especially for the younger audience, um, Scotty McGregor had already won a Cy Young. He was a left-handed starting pitcher for the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, he he was probably six foot, one hundred and seventy, one hundred and eighty pounds. You know, not big, especially to today's standards. And I'm watching him throw his bullpen, and I'm and I'm watching, and I'm going, man, he's he's taking it easy. It's like he's moving in slow motion, um, and he's just there. And 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 I'm the more I'm watching, you know, it's like everything's smooth and under control, and then his front foot hits the ground, and it's like a whip. So then I move to behind him because I'm. I'm I knew he had a great sinker. He, he, he threw a lot of two seamers, had a big slow curve ball, good change up, good command. So I slide kind of hoping nobody notices, but I slide behind him and I'm watching the ball. And as it gets to the plate, just when the hitter would be putting his foot down, if it was in a game, the ball exploded on the plate. And I'm thinking, how does he do that? You're young. You think it's all about creating force and power and the whole thing. You want to throw harder. You want to throw farther. You think that Nolan Ryan, because he throws 100, that's why the ball explodes. You have no idea the true reasons when you're that young why the ball explodes. Scotty McGregor, on his best day, I mean, on today's guns, would probably be throwing like 85 miles an hour, you know. And yet the ball exploded when it got to the plate. And that's when I, I coined the term in my head, the, the ball found the glove. It just boom, right? So when I was younger, I had developed the ability to do that, but I didn't know the reasons why it, it actually worked. So then Mike Flanagan gets up on the mound to throw his bullpen. Totally different body. Big thighs, strong lower half, you know, maybe 6'1", but 
you know, easily like 205 and just, and I'm like, all right. And I, and he had already won a Cy Young and I'm like, well, it's going to be good. I'm going to watch him. I think I'm more like this guy, you know, the way I do things. And all of a sudden I notice, holy mackerel, he's moving in slow motion. What is it? This, what, what is it about these guys? And then his front foot hits and boom, he explodes. And he's, he's throwing easy, easy in the nineties. And then, you know, probably up to 95, whenever he wants. And, uh, and I'm like, man, there's, there's something here. I got to figure it out. So you fast forward many years, cause that was my first experience about rhythm and timing and getting to release point and basically throwing the ball is like snapping the bull whip. And sure enough, uh, in my lifetime, you know, pitching instructors have come up with uh, towel drills and everything to try to simulate it. But I'm, uh, when I was a little younger at 15, I, uh, had the uh, opportunity to work with uh, the Hall of Fame coach from the University of Maine in a summer camp, John Winkin. And uh, through him, I, I, I was able to meet uh, Dr. Bill Thurston, who was the head coach at UMass Amherst. Oh, yeah. When, when, he, uh, when he was asked to coach, be the head coach for the fir- first Australian Olympic team, he didn't want to get paid for it. He said he would do it, uh, build a science lab. Uh, and I would, you could say maybe the first, as they're called now, pitching lab, uh, you know, ever created, you know, at UMass Amherst. And it was all with force plates and stress plates and all these other stuff that is probably antiquated technology for now. But um, I started to start to see and, and see this research and different stuff. And, um, he, through him, I, I, I read this whole uh, theory of pitching me- mechanics done by like the top 15 uh, Chinese bioengineers who had no background in baseball, but China wanted to get into Olympic baseball. So they did this whole research and this whole thesis, and I read it, and they called it uh, double spin because they were talking about trunk rotation and, uh, and your hand, you know, the two, the two arcs that created force. This was probably around 1987 when I was coaching at um, Pace University in New York. And I just already knew from my experiences, I knew from watching, flashing back to the day of those bullpens by McGregor and Flanagan, that there was more than two two uh, rotational forces being created here. And I started teaching hip shoulder separation way before the term was even, you know, coined. Um, you know, you got, you have to cut researchers some slack because in order to do any medical research, you know, it's a minimum of 15 years. So they might've had the idea way before I came up with it, but they had to research it to, you know, medically prove the thesis right or wrong. And, at the time, especially, I wasn't necessarily the most creative person, and uh, I was more competitive and uh, performance orientated. I just said, "Well, it's not double spin; it's triple spin," and then that's where uh, the term triple spin was created. and And it and it's basically describing the pitching mechanic in what I saw Scotty McGregor 
Mike Flanagan, and then, you know, later on in my years with the Orioles, Jim Palmer, what they were doing and the ease of how they did it and their rhythm and their timing and that everything in their body exploded at and through release point, not before. And this is what I carry over to, uh, to try to get young kids to understand. Um, when I first started teaching it, many pitchers, amateur pitchers, college pitchers that I was working with, they didn't have any foundational issues with their, with their lower body or their hips. Um, I rarely did I see it. So I did what well, in psychology, they use the term reverse mapping. So I reverse mapped from release point. So if they were to throw a, a 30 pitch bullpen, they would throw at least 50%, 60, 70% where they did it correctly. So I always reverse mapped on the feel of how that was, you know, from release point back and then they'd get into the flow and it was all about how they felt. Um, when I'm working with someone, I, I try not to use a lot of words, words, they could mean anything. What I think one word means, you might think it's a little something different. So I don't do it. It's more about the feel. But then later on, I'm in pro ball and, and more and more of these guys, especially when I was the coordinator, pitching coordinator, more and more of these guys are coming. Um, and uh, my pitching coordinator, when I worked in Toronto, who later was the big league pitching coach, Bruce Walton, we would have these conversations and he, and he would say, um, these, the, the kids' foundations are so bad that, you know, in a 30-pitch bullpen, they might throw five correctly because the foundation's all off. So we started working on, you know, how to develop the foundation and how to get the hips to work without, you know, making it a paint-by-numbers thing that it would still feel. And then that's what further advanced the whole concept of triple spin. And then sure enough, I couldn't put a specific date on it, but um, I would say early in the 2000s or so, maybe 2010, but all the research comes out about the importance of hip mobility and a majority of young players nowadays have zero hip mobility because a lot of them have maybe only played baseball and have only done one type of movement their whole life. So they haven't um, created a large base of motor skills from playing other sports or just running around or riding your bike or running up the hill or climbing trees. And, you know, in the next episode, we might, we, we could maybe spend a whole episode talking about hip mobility and how important it is. I was going to hit on that. Cause that is uh, it's a huge component of what we're doing now. And I agree with you a hundred percent. You'll see, you'll see these guys online training in, and these are, high-class athletes training at power five football programs too, power five baseball, power five basketball. And you'll see them do basic hip flexion or hip rotation um, where they should be able to go up 90 degrees simply. And it is a struggle. You watch them struggle, do it. And uh, I don't think the people training them mean, mean to put it out there as a negative, but what you're saying is spot on right now. So yeah, let's, let's uh, transition into our next show and uh, share with our audience a little bit about what we can expect with the next show. Great synopsis about what we're going to cover so our audience this is jim gave you a great overview of his philosophy and and how we're going to approach this development phase he's got a unique unique method of teaching and training and relating to people and kids 
So that's, that's your education. And we're going to get um, more specific as we get into the other shows, but yeah, great, great first episode, Jim. And share, just share a little bit about what we can expect next. Well, my main goal with this show is, um, and it, it hit me when I was listening to one of your other podcasts with uh, Bob Schaefer. Um, Bob's a friend of mine uh, in the past. He's, he's helped me tremendously. And, and just to sit down and have a conversation with him, it's like the knowledge is just unbelievable. Oh, so, my God. He's a savant. Yeah. And so you listen to him and I'm like, you know, how, how am I going to, how am I going to teach or speak in the niche niche that I'm comfortable with, but I'd rather sit and just listen to Bob Schaefer. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you and me both. So, um, so that's when you and I had the conversation and and it was more about youth development and, and continuing to try to reach out and help uh, young ball players and parents to, kind of understand what's going on and, and, and move ahead and progress in, in, in their maturation. So my goal is that at times I may throw in some technical terms and different things about what I'm trying to explain, but I'm trying to bring it down to the, to the bare minimum in the, to take a complex concept and make it understandable. Um, a prime example of that is when they first came out with the modus sleeve, the brand manager asked me maybe the, if I could develop a, a pitching manual on how, when the dad is helping their son gets all the data from the modus sleeve about workload and force and all this other stuff and, you know, high effort throws and torque on the elbow. What, what, what should they do with it? Like how do they apply it to their training and all? And, uh, Modus kind of really flew their information right over the head of the people, especially in the retail market that purchased their product. Thus, later it was sold to Driveline, um, and now it goes by the name of Pulse. So I'm I'm attempting to be the 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 conduit to help people understand all the difficult concepts in the biomedical processes, or even the mental processes that it takes to try to help your child or help your young ball players and help maybe coach your team better and, and do the things. Um, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day. I, I do go out and help um, different travel teams prep for the season. I work with their coaches on how to do things, but you know, there's seven days a week. If maybe I then reach seven teams, whereas with this podcast and other things that I'm attempting to do, is to just broaden the message so people um, can understand these difficult concepts and, and what's best for their child and, and how to move over and, uh, through sticking points and different teaching mechanisms. Um, I'm going to steal a page out of your book, and um, I can be reached on Facebook at Rooney Baseball, um, or you can send me an email at Coach Jim at RooneyBaseball.com. And uh, whether it's answering questions, helping with problems, uh, even down to some video analysis, other things, just to get guys over the hump and, and, and get them uh, in the direction and down the path of, of feeling what they're doing and being part of the process and understanding why things work certain ways that they work. So I'd be open and free to take care of all that. 
And um, on the upcoming podcast, we're we're probably going to uh, take out specifics, um, like the importance of hip mobility, and get into depth on some of that. Um, the importance of uh, proper placement of the elbow and the throwing mechanism. What's the things that go wrong? Why do they do it? Um, different things about pitching mechanics. Um, young kids nowadays attempting to create too much force are very, very quick to their front side, how that throws off the balance, the rhythm, the timing, you know, all the different little things that you might have heard. And then uh, we'll try to expand on it and, and bring it down to um, layman's terms, so to speak, so that positive things can occur from it. I love it. Well, tremendous first episode. Uh, you, you'll now have 20,000 new people following you and be careful what you wish for with the emails. But I encourage all of our listeners to take Jim up on that offer, email him, reach out to his website, make sure that you utilize him. Tremendous resource, very unique individual in terms of his method of teaching. And I believe we need more of you out there because we can change the game. If we have more guys out there like you that are approaching it this way, make sure with our audience now, as we support Jim, uh, with us as a whole network, 20,000 of you almost continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can battle those analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball. We can keep giving you great content like we did today on episode 213, Toe the Rubber, player development for all ages. Get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can get us live one person a day I pick. Everybody else gets a message privately back. Continue to follow Jim. Um, also take him up on that offer. He said, 72 countries, I'm putting it to you. Flood his inbox. We're in 72 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And as you learned today, you know, prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball. We hit on life and health. Um, as this program, like all of our other programs, just have no time for the comforting lies out there. We're going to get you right between the eyes. Jim, thanks for a great first show. We appreciate you. We're glad to have you as part of our network. We're very, very uh, fortunate to get you. Well, thank you, Dave, and I'm looking forward to uh, talk to everybody next week. Great. Look forward to next week with Toe the Rubber, and have a good day, audience.